Good morning. Am I on? Is it working this time? I don't know. Can you, can you hear me out there? Okay, good. It wasn't working first service. We had to call an audible and use a handheld, so I'd much prefer not having to hold something in my hands except my Bible while I'm trying to preach. Uh, it is really good to be with you this morning. I am glad to be here. Uh, Scott and Reed have become some dear friends over the past several years, and um, it's just exciting to know what God's doing here at Northside. Uh, I got to tell you, I love Northside. Uh, I love your church. I love your heart. I love the way you love people and care for people. Uh, just as a person, I appreciate it, but then also as a campus minister, I want to tell you how much um, we uh, just overwhelmingly appreciate your support, both your financial support and the way you do dinners for us at BCM. We've seen God do some amazing things at BCM over the past four or five years that uh, really is beyond anything um, we kind of imagined when we first got here. When we first got here, there'd be about 30 or 40 students on our Thursday night gathering. Uh, this past fall, we averaged 214 was at our, our gathering. We had about 10 students in small groups when we first started. We had about 168 students in small groups this past year. We saw 24 students come to know Christ, both at Winthrop and at Clinton College. So we're grateful for what God's doing. Excuse me, for what God's doing. And we could not do that without the support of churches like Northside. So I just want to say thank you. Um, so much of what we do on Withers campus is supported by you. Um, and I told the, the first service, the, um, the students love Northside too because you guys, I don't know if you know this or not, but when you bring dinner, y'all are the, the church that brings soups. Um, and because the students love it when there's soup there, they get excited. Oh, it's the soup church. Um, so, um, so we make sure they know the soup church is Northside and so then they can know where you are. Um, but thank you so much, and uh, also on behalf of the South Carolina Baptist Convention, thank you for your support of the cooperative program, which allows not only us to do ministry on Winthrop's campus, but across college campuses all over South Carolina, ministry that goes far beyond what you could think or imagine. So thank you for that, for your generosity and your faithfulness. Um, we will be in God's Word this morning in the book of Titus, chapter 2. So if you have a Bible and you want to open to the book of Titus, if you don't know where the book of Titus is, it's in the New Testament, which is on the right-hand side. If you don't know where it is, use the table of contents. That's what they put it there for. Um, there's no shame in that whatsoever. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, it will be on the screen, so you'll be able to see that. Um, we'll start out telling you a little bit about myself. My wife and I have been married for almost 16 years uh, we have four kids. Caleb is 11, Noah is 9, Josiah is 7, and our little girl Eden is 5. And uh, they are a mess, and they're fun, and we homeschool, so we are almost done with school for the year. And my wife said, hooray, hallelujah, praise the Lord, I'm off. And so uh, she's, uh, she's about done. She's a trooper. She does amazing with them. Um, but, you know, if you have kids, they all have their own unique personalities, and it comes out in different ways. And one of the ways that my kids' personality comes through is the way that they would come in in the middle of the night if they've had a bad dream or if they get scared about something or if they're not feeling well. Um, so if you're a parent, you know that there are times that, that children just appear in your room in the middle of the night, um, but they're all unique. So Caleb, when Caleb would come in, Caleb, they would all come to my side of the bed, uh, much to my wife's happiness, um, which is odd because I'm, you know, pretty laid back and easygoing, but when I get woken up, I'm just grumpy, but they still would come to my side, I guess, because I'm dad. But they would come, and Caleb would come in, our oldest, he would come in, and he would take his hand and put it on the pillow right next to my head and just push down on it. I don't, know why, I don't know where this came from or why he decided that was the way to do it. So, you know, I'm just dead asleep, and all of a sudden my head just dashes over to the side, and I wake up, and I'm tired, or I need to, you know, I need to get in your bed, so they crawl in bed with us. Noah, um, our second son, who's the most like me, when he would come in, he wouldn't do anything. He would just come and stand at the bed and do this. 
So you get that dad sense of something's not right, I need to open my eyes. You turn around, there's a child a foot from your face, and it, you know your heart goes 90 miles an hour and freaked out. Okay, you can jump in the bed. Josiah, Josiah is not gentle. He's not gentle with anything. He is wide open everywhere he goes, whatever he does. He is full tilt. So he just comes in and just starts shaking you, starts shaking you, waking up. And Eden, Eden, our girl, she's the talker. So she just starts talking by the time she hits the door. She comes in, she says, Daddy, Daddy, I had a bad dream, and you need to wake up. You know, she's five. She's telling me what to do. But the thing is, with all of them, the personalities come through. But with all of them, there was a reason why they came into the room, and there's an effect when they came into the room. They wanted something to happen. They appeared for a reason. Why do I tell you crazy stories about my kids? Well, believe it or not, I think it ties into what we're going to be talking about this morning. This morning, we're going to be in the book of Titus chapter 2. And Paul talks about the appearing of Christ. And the appearing of Christ wasn't for no effect or for no reason or to be able to tell a cute story. The, the appearing of Christ has life-changing, earth-shattering effects, both today and when it happened. And Paul actually doesn't talk just about one appearing, but about two appearings. So we're going to talk about those this morning. And my hope is that as we explore this and as we dig into this text, that if you're a follower of Christ... If you would say this morning that you have trusted the gospel and you are following Jesus, that you would be challenged and you would be encouraged to pursue more diligently after Jesus. And my hope is that if you are not a follower of Christ, maybe you came this morning because somebody invited you or you just wandered in off the street or whatever it might be. My hopes is that you would hear the greatest news the world has ever heard or ever will hear. And that you would understand the love of God for you this morning. Titus chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 11 through 14. Um, I'm going to read those and then we're going to pray. Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the, appearance of the, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let's pray. Father, you are great and you are glorious. Your majesty knows no ends. Your grace is overwhelming. And Father, we come to you confessing we are not people who have all things together, who do all things well, who follow you the way that we should. Father, we are, we are stained. We have walked through the world and we need to be cleansed by your grace and your gospel. And we know, Lord, that even when we fail, you are good and you are for us. And we thank you for the message and hope of Christ, that we stand forgiven in him and we will be forgiven. So, Lord, as we open up this word this morning, I pray that you would speak to us, that we would be challenged and changed, and that the hope spoken of in this text would sustain us in all ways. We love you, and we ask it in the name of Christ. Amen. So this morning, first thing I want to talk about is the first appearance Paul makes mention of, and that's the appearance of grace. So if we look in verses 11 through 12, we see that the grace of God has appeared. 
Now, the word, the first word in verse 11 is the word for. Now, when you see something like that, what we know is there's a transition. Paul is basically saying, what I just told you, here's why. So we need to have a little background on the book of Titus. Some of you may be familiar with Titus, so this will be um, just rehashing the the truth. Some of you may have never read Titus before, so I want you to kind of know what's going on. Titus is a letter written to a guy named Titus by Paul. Titus is on an island called Crete, and what Paul has done is as they've planted church there and started church... Paul has left Titus in that place to make sure everything's in order, to make sure the church is set up right, is run right, but then also to train and equip people to follow Jesus according to the gospel. So Titus is both walking with believers and he's helping unbelievers at the same time. And one of the things about Titus that's a little bit different than most of Paul's letters, Paul typically will start out the first half of his letters extolling the virtues of the gospel, talking about the greatness of God, our wonderful salvation, And then he will turn about halfway through and say, because of this great gospel, this is what our lives should look like as a result. But Titus is a little bit different because Paul starts out from the very beginning telling Titus, okay, you need to put elders in place in the churches. You need to make sure things are done right. This is what you need to teach people. You need to keep an eye on your doctrine. And you need to make sure that this is how you teach the older men. This is how you teach the older women. This is how you teach the younger women. This is how you teach the younger men. This is what you teach those who are slaves or servants for This is why. All of this, telling them they need to live godly lives, and the reason why is found in these verses right here. So that's context of where we're going. That's where we see we're in the middle of this argument. It says, for the grace of God has appeared. Now, one of the things that we will do, and I'm going to say we, maybe I should say I, sometimes when I think of the word grace, I think of an attribute of God. I think of a disposition of God towards me, and that is a good thing. That's why we sing amazing grace. But one of the things that if we are not careful is we will miss the astounding words that are in this verse because it should blow us away. Paul doesn't merely say that God has bestowed grace upon us. And when I say the word merely, I don't act as if God bestowing grace is something that shouldn't cause us to worship and stand in awe of God. Because it should. Because if you know yourself the way that I know myself, to know that God would forgive me in spite of myself is an awe-inspiring thing. It would be enough for God to be a distant God, to bestow grace upon us. That would be awe-inspiring. That should motivate us to obedience. But that is not what Paul says God has done. Notice what it says. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. Paul is here reminding us that it wasn't just that God gave grace. Grace himself stepped into the scene. Jesus said this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. God himself entered into our suffering. God himself entered into our pain. God himself entered into our brokenness. God himself took on flesh and lived a perfect life that we could not live. God himself bore the penalty for our sins. God himself died the death that we deserve. And God himself crushed the power of sin, death, the grave, and stood in new life offering the promise of hope. You see, it would be enough if God gave us grace, but the overwhelming, awesome, amazing awe-inspiring truth is that God himself came to do it. 
We were lost and dead in our sins, and God didn't just say, I will wash over it. He said, I will come and bear the penalty for it, and I will give myself in your place that you might have life. That's the good news of the gospel. And Paul doesn't want us to get over the fact that we have received grace because it's not just God's disposition towards us. It is God himself. He is grace. One of the things that make Christianity unique is it doesn't tell you the way to salvation. Jesus is the way to salvation. He didn't come teaching us a path. He didn't come teaching us things to do. He came saying, I am grace. I am your salvation. Why am I harping in on this? Why am I talking so much about the fact that God himself is the one who's done this? Because that is what enraptures our heart. It's enough to say that God is amazing, but to see who God is and who he is for us captures our heart. And notice the effect in verse 12. It trains us to do two things, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Now, sometimes we want to look at words like this and think maybe it's hyperbole, but there's an intentionality here because the understanding is that our sin is what separated us from God. Our sin deserves God's wrath. Our sin deserves separation from God. But God himself came so that we wouldn't bear any of that. So what does it train us to do? To renounce ungodliness. Ungodliness is the things that separated us from God. It's the things that were the result of a sinful heart that was unchanged by the gospel. Why would we still walk in those things? Why would we still play with those things? Why would we still longingly look at those things? The right response to someone who's been changed by the gospel is to renounce them. But it's the whole idea that the Bible talks about called repentance. We don't just turn away from those. We turn to things to live a life that honors God and pleases God and seeks after godliness. All of this is rooted in the understanding that Christ has came, Christ has died, and Christ has risen from the dead on our behalf. And if we have trusted this and we have believed this, we renounce ungodliness and strive for godliness. I tell you, the word train in the beginning there really is encouraging to me. And I'll tell you why. Some of us get the feeling that, man, I've been walking with Jesus for years, and I still struggle with this sin, or my life isn't perfect. Why haven't I completely renounced these things? Why don't I always live self-controlled? Maybe I'm not really a believer. Maybe things aren't right. But one of the things we know that when the grace of God trains us, we think of a child in school. When you're in kindergarten, you read really small words. Hopefully, by the time you graduate, you're reading really long words, or at least longer than three-letter words. You're trying to put some sentences together. You're writing essays. You're getting ready to go to college. You're getting ready to enter the workforce. The training that goes through this time as a child grows, as they're learning all of these things, is the idea. God's grace trains us one step at a time. Maybe it's giant leaps. Maybe it's baby steps. And the thing, if you've ever trained for anything, there's always setbacks. But the idea of training is that you're continually moving forward. God knows we are weak. God knows how much we need the gospel, and the grace is always there. So can I tell you, if you're discouraged this morning, you're a follower of Jesus, 
and you start to think about that we need to be renouncing ungodliness and live self-controlled, and you know that in your life right now there are things you've not renounced, there are things you aren't striving for, can I tell you the grace of God is sufficient for those things? Even this morning, when you feel like they are insurmountable, Christ says they are not, and he is for you, and he will supply all that you need to pursue after life and godliness. There's hope in these words. But that's not the only appearing. There's also the second appearing. We see it in verses 13 and 14. I've called it the appearance of hope. Verse 13 and 14 say this, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearance and glory of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, what I don't want to do is by making a second point here, kind of differentiate and say that Paul has a strong divide. Because if you notice, as you're reading the text, Paul's got this kind of penchant for long sentences. Like if Paul were going to college nowadays, he would get F's on papers because he makes these sentences that are like four paragraphs long. They're just these long sentences. So this is this really long sentence. So if you notice, even in the way that it's written in our English Bible, there's just a comma between 12 and 13. This is all part of one, one thought, but there's uniqueness to it. So there's the appearing, the appearance of hope. Paul writes that we are waiting for another appearing. It is awesome and amazing that Christ has appeared, but Paul wants us to remember that Christ will appear once again. It's kind of like we see in the book of Acts, first chapter. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The apostles were there. Jesus gave them the last command. You will be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. And Jesus is taken up, and they're standing there going, what has just happened? You think they wouldn't be surprised by it. And the two angels come, and they say, why do you stand here? Go about doing what he's called you to do. He's going to come back. Paul wants us to know Christ is returning. And it's the appearance of Christ that is our hope. Why is it that Christ's appearing is our hope? Because when Christ returns, he finishes what he started. I don't know about you, but I don't like pain and suffering. I don't like when I get the news that somebody else has cancer. I don't like when I read in the newspaper that a mom was taken from her family by a drunk driver. I don't like these things, and I want them to end, and I want Christ to return to set all things new and to consummate what he started. That is our hope, and unfortunately, as we look around, we can see that there are many times for many of us, even as followers of Christ, where we can put our hope in the wrong thing. We put our hope in our bank account. We put our hope in our retirement savings. We put our hope in a relationship. We put our hope in a political figure. We put our hope in our own strength, our own wisdom. We put our hope in an education. We put our hope in a job. We put our hope in a car. We put our hope in whatever. And if we say, if this is in place, if this is good, if this reaches a certain level, if this is just right, my life will be okay and I never have to worry. That's your hope. And the problem is none of those things can sustain the weight of bearing up our hope. They will all be crushed at some point in time. Only Christ 
can sustain. Only Christ can bear up our hope. Our hope is that the one who is grace himself, who came down, is coming back for us. The one who started the restoration will complete the restoration. And notice again that if you look here, what happens is that there's a parallel between verse 14 and verse 12. So verse 14 says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. That's a lot like verse 12, where we renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And for both of these, both of these appearances, the appearance of Christ to come and give himself for us so that we might be redeemed to God, and the appearance of Christ to come consummate what he started and to bring us home, both of those, Paul says, drives us to turn away from sinfulness and to turn towards godly obedience. Both of these are the hope of the gospel. What Paul calls us to do is to walk a certain way. Now, I told you about our kids. Our kids kind of have this other problem. Um, It's not just when they come in and wake us up, which can be a problem. But it's those of you who have kids, maybe you can relate to this. You're going into a store. So we went went into Target yesterday. So you got four kids and trying to get them into the store. It's like herding cats. It's just kind of crazy. But what happens is it never fails. At least one of them, if not two of them at a time, are walking into the store this way, but they're looking like this. And so they just continue going. So there's cars, there's carts, and then they're in the store, and they're just getting distracted by shiny things and all. And you're kind of watch where you're going, watch where you're going, don't walk out in front of that car, watch where you're going, don't do this, watch out for the cart, don't run into the lady. I'm sorry, my kids are crazy. You're trying to get them all back in here together. And what are we constantly telling them? We're constantly telling them to watch where they're walking. But Paul is actually calling us to do something different. He's calling us to walk where we're watching. In other words, we are to turn our eyes on Christ and the life he would have us live. And as we do that, we turn ourselves to walk towards him. We're to walk where we're watching. As I was studying this, I got to thinking about the English word appearance. Now, the English word appearance can have a couple of different meanings. It can be the appearance, like my kids coming in or Christ appearing. And this isn't true of Greek, so I'm not saying this is what Paul's thinking when he used the word appearance. But there can be the appearance of grace and hope that's in another way. So I kind of illustrate it like this. Imagine um, you were walking down a trail. You're walking down a trail, and you come up on a small clearing. And when you get there, you see a guy with a really big stick, and it's raised up over his head like this, and there's somebody down on the ground. And so you think, this guy's about to beat somebody. I've got to intervene. And you go running up, and as you run, the the stick comes down, and you start screaming, no! And the stick comes down, and as you get there, you realize he wasn't hitting the person. It was the four-foot copperhead that was about to bite somebody who couldn't get up off the ground. When you walked around the corner, it appeared as though this man was about to beat someone up. But the reality was... He was actually saving someone's life. Appearances can be deceiving. Well, sadly, in the church, some of us can be living to keep up appearances. It's not just in the church. It's a cultural thing. We want people to think the best of us. We want to look like we've got it all together. And if you you don't know if that's true or not, just look at the explosion of social media over the past 10 years. 
How many ways can you show somebody how great your life is? But I want to go a little bit deeper than that. This can even be within the church a tendency to put on the appearance that we have experienced the grace and hope of Christ. We can say the right words, go through some of the right motions, but there's something mission, missing. And I think the reason why this could be, it could be a couple of reasons. One, maybe you are a genuine follower of Christ. We've lost our awe of the gospel. We've lost the astounding nature that Christ has come for us and redeemed us. And when we lose that, we will do some nice things. We will volunteer some. We'll be a nice person. We won't go out and, you know, steal things from our neighbor more than likely. But we won't pour ourselves into a life that is diligently zealous for good works. We won't renounce ungodliness because we've lost our awe of the gospel. The other thing could be this. People can go to church, walk down an aisle, go to Bible studies, be a part of everything, and not truly know and understand the gospel. And so you want to look like everybody else and know the lingo and keep up an appearance. The fact of the matter is if we're only putting up the appearance of having been changed by the gospel, we will find that our hope is fleeting. We'll put our hope in other things and other things will always disappoint. So what do we do with this? What do we do with Titus 2, 11 through 14? What is it that God would want us to respond to in this? Well, there's three things that I'd like to say this morning in closing that I think as I was studying this, I felt like God was pushing on my heart that maybe it would be beneficial for you. First is this. I've said it a couple times. We must never lose our awe of the gospel. Never. The moment that the gospel becomes mere facts or something that's just for people who don't know Jesus, we are on the verge of losing our awe of the gospel. It becomes commonplace. It should always overwhelm us that Christ gave himself for us. The gospel isn't just some way that somebody becomes a Christian. It's how we finish as a Christian. Second thing is this. We must pursue obedience. We must pursue obedience. The thing about the Bible is that God doesn't give us suggestions. God doesn't give us tips and tricks. God doesn't just give us good ideas. God gives us commands. And I want to say this. For a gospel-saturated people, like people at Northside Har, we know the gospel. We love the gospel. We never, ever, ever want to give anybody the idea that your good works earn you merit in God's sight. That is the antithesis of grace. We want to make sure that we, whatever we say never smacks of do good things so that God will love you or you can keep God's love. We never want to be there. And sometimes what we can do as a danger is we can walk away from the idea that we have obedience. But what we've got to remember is that Christ, that Paul, who's always giving us commands, where do they come from? They come from a rooted in the gospel. 
because of what Christ has done, because of who he is for us, because he has redeemed us from lawlessness, he has shown us how to renounce these things, we are obedient because of what Christ has done, because the cross is complete, because we can't earn anything, because God has lavished grace upon us. This should have an effect on our lives where we long to pursue the one who gave himself for us. Far from trying to earn anything, far from trying to make ourselves right in God's sight, our obedience flows out of the fact that Christ has made us complete and whole in him. And that should cause us to move forward. His commands are for our good. When we know who God is, we know that his commands are for our good and for our best. And we can know that if God says, this is the way you should live, even if the world says different, even if our feelings betray us, we know that God is for us. He never seeks to just hold us down. He is not a cosmic tyrant who just wants to steal all of our fun. He is for our good and for our joy. And the way that we find joy and good is in the way that God has designed things. And so if God has laid those before us, even at the time that our heart is not pursuing after it diligently, we can say, God is for me and God is for my good. And if this is what God has said, this is for my good. And so I will strive after it even if I don't feel Feel it at the moment. You see, we pursue obedience. We ask ourselves some questions. And I want to just be honest with you. Well, I've been honest with you the entire time. I want to be candid with you. Um, a friend of mine helped me to see that a few uh, months ago. Um, I thought, man, yeah, I don't want to make it out like I'm being dishonest. I'm being honest. But I want to be candid. Um, I was looking over this, this, this last night, and these three questions that I'm about to ask right here were questions that I asked myself. And I just had to stop for a few minutes. Because it can be easy to ask questions as somebody who's preaching, as if those questions don't apply to me, they're just what God has for you. And I want to tell you last night, God just kind of rang my bell a little bit with these questions. Questions are this, am I zealous for good works? Not do I do a few things, not am I a nice person, am I zealous for good works? Have I renounced ungodliness? I mean, have just gotten to the point that I hate it and want nothing to do with it. Have I put my hope in something other than Jesus? And as I got to looking at those questions and I got to examining my life, I got to see that, man, I don't think zealous for good works is really the descriptor of my life. There are things that I just, maybe I haven't renounced that are ungodly. And so God is just kind of gently, by his grace, reminding me. My obedience doesn't earn me anything. My obedience is because my heavenly Father has loved me and redeemed me. And I am now his, adopted into his family. And as I bear his name, I want to bring honor to that name. And I want to live in such a way that these things are true. Last thing is this. We must go beyond appearances. Can I just tell you, you already know this, but if you're one of those people that I was talking about who just want to keep up appearances, you just want to look the part, and deep down inside you know the part is not true, you know how exhausting that is. It's absolutely exhausting. 
because there's no grace in your life. That means any time and every time you fail, there's risk of exposure. There's risk that somebody's not going to think the facade is true. And so you have to double down and work so hard in hopes that you can keep everybody thinking the right thing. I was reading this morning uh, um, a book by Charles Spurgeon called uh, Christ's Glorious Achievements. And one of the lines he said was, if I had to choose when I get to heaven of saying, um, I'm going to use my righteousness as my way to get into heaven, or I want God, Christ's righteousness to be what gets me in heaven, why in the world would I take my puny options of the good things I've done and say, that's better than what Christ has done? He said, that would be ridiculous. It's a paraphrase. And so can I tell you, if you're striving to just keep up appearances, there is rest for your soul in the gospel. Because the gospel is not about what you do or have done, but about what Christ has already accomplished on your behalf. It is done. And there is freedom to fail. And there is freedom to not get everything right. Because all of that has been covered over at the cross. And there's no better way to drive forward into the hope of the gospel than to know that it's for freedom that we have been set free. So maybe this morning, for the very first time, you've heard this message of the gospel. And you know that you are the one who's trying to keep up appearance. You are trying to do the right thing. And it is exhausting. And this morning, you just need to trust in Christ. I would encourage you when this service is over, ask the person who invited you. Ask the person you know who's a follower of Christ. Ask one of the staff members. And let me just tell you, if you're trying to keep up appearances, the, the chances are that some of you could have grown up in this church. Maybe you've been here for a long time. And as you're thinking and you're realizing, hey, this appearance thing, this is me. I'm doing this. But what would people think? They would think that Christ is a great Savior. And you have trusted the good news of the gospel. That's what they would think. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you that you have not left us as orphans, but you have given us your spirit and you have given us your word. Lord, I pray that you would take it and drive it deep into our hearts that we would always stand in awe of Christ and that we would be a people with the gospel on our mouths that we might preach it to ourselves, we might preach it to each other, that we might preach it to a lost and dying world, that Christ might be honored and supreme in all things. We love you and ask it in his name. Amen.